Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 12. 1 Samuel, chapter 12, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read this chapter. Uh, so if you have your Bibles open to it, that would be uh, excellent. 1 Samuel 12. Um, you can use the pew Bibles that are ahead of you. You'll find 1 Samuel towards the beginning of the Bible. Uh, it's one of the large books there. If you're in Joshua or Judges, turn right. If you're in Psalms and Isaiah, turn left and you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, while you're turning there, I'll just mention that uh, Scott had uh, mentioned an event uh, sponsored by Go Beyond. Go Beyond is a group of churches that is, uh, in particular this time of year, working to serve the community through a variety of ways. You might see them, uh, people with Go Beyond t-shirts around. Um, those are our folks. Uh, there, um, Go Beyond is, is a ministry that's led by Harvest Bible Chapel uh, that meets in the city, and that's a fine congregation. And um, they're uh, uh, certainly men and women with whom we hold the gospel in common. Uh, so next year, hopefully, we will be more involved in Go Beyond than we are. But if you see those folks out serving, um, encourage them. They're our brothers and sisters in the faith. So um, that's good. Now, First Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader uh, from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify, me against, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hands, hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also has anointed his witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But... They forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hetzor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you, so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, Good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. 
Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, The Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. I want you to direct your attention for just a moment this morning to a verse. I wrote it down on that green sheet of paper in your bulletin. That's the note sheet. I want to direct you to a verse that I might argue is the least obeyed verse in all of the New Testament, if not all of the Bible. It's in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16. Listen to what James 5:16 says. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There it is, that command, confess your sins to one another. Now, as you look at it on the printed page, I want you to think with me about the role that this command plays in your life. First of all, we have to admit it's not an easy verse to understand. It's not the words, it's the context. We'll talk about that in a minute. As convictional Protestants, one of the things that we do know, we are certain that this verse is not a command that you have to confess your sins to a priest who will pronounce uh, uh, absolution over you. We know that. Whatever this verse means, we know that. That's usually, though, as far as we get in applying or understanding this verse. It's not the words, it's the context that gives us trouble. This is about someone who is sick. Did you notice the word healed there is in that verse? Uh, What kind of sickness? Is it physical sickness or is it spiritual sickness? It, It could be. What does this verse say about the difference between or the relationship between sin and sickness? Is that the only context that this applies that we would think about talking with one another about our sin? I don't think so. If I read our church covenant, it seems like there's a lot in there. There's there's portions of it that that you can't obey, you can't possibly apply, unless we talk to one another about our own sins. How should that work? Uh, Who do you confess your sins to and how many of them and why? And if someone confesses to you, how should you respond? Should you think in terms of of a counselor? Are you telling me this because you want me to help you work through and understand what's happening? Or or are you coming to me as an accountability partner? You want me to help you stop doing this? Or are you coming to me as as, uh, for comfort so that I can look at you and say, oh brother, remember God forgives Richard Baxter. 
There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. That's good news. Probably at some point in time, James had in mind that all three of those would, would, would apply. Sometimes we need help understanding. Sometimes we need comfort. Sometimes we need a, accountability. We have problems with this verse understanding it. We have problems with applying it. I think there's even deeper issues at work, though, when we read James 5.16. I recoil from this verse because this just sounds embarrassing. Shame. Confess your sins to one another. I have enough shame in my life that I can't control. Why do I want to introduce more shame in my life? Uh, Actually, I think there's even something deeper than that. Maybe that's at the taproot of my troubles. Maybe your troubles with this verse too. To confess my sins means that I am accountable to someone else. That there is a higher power with the right to tell me what to do and label me as missing the mark. And my confession, if I confess to you, I highlight both my accountability to him and my guilt before him. I think that that, you could make a case that that accountability, actually our hesitancy to own our accountability, is the most important issue here in James 5. I learned that from Christian apologists. We talked about Christian apologists a few weeks ago. Apologists are people within the church who um, work to answer some of the doubts and questions that skeptics have. Uh, The Bible takes doubt seriously. The Bible takes questions that people have seriously. In fact, the whole Gospel of Luke was written to give a man assurance. He had he believed what the Bible what he had heard about Jesus, but he had he had questions and things that didn't quite click with him. And the whole Gospel of Luke was written to help this man find confidence in his faith in Jesus. And there are those in the church who are especially gifted at this. They 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 take questions and objections that people have, and they respond wisely and well. That it bolsters the faith of those who are stumbling and it, 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 it uh, softens the blows of some uh, critics? Well, if you talk to men and women who give themselves over to this work of uh, apologizing, not, not saying I'm sorry, but defending the faith, they will tell you that sometimes the most significant issue that they deal with is buried pretty deep. On the surface, you might be talking about the reliability of the Bible or uh, the, the judicial wisdom of eternal punishment. That might be what you're talking about on the surface. But, but beneath that, underneath those objections, there's just this hesitancy to deal with the fact that God is, that he has revealed himself in Scripture, and that he is sovereign and worthy of our highest allegiance. Sometimes, I, I know I'm being simplistic here. I know that, I realize that. Sometimes, though, people object to Christianity not because it is not intellectually credible, but because they don't want it to be true. Because if it's true, it means that there is a God to whom they are accountable, a God to whom they must answer. You cannot have a real relationship with the God of the Bible without honestly facing your accountability to him. I bring that up today because that seems to be one of Samuel's key themes here in the speech that he delivers to uh, God's people, Israel, in 1 Samuel chapter 12. 
Um, the people have asked for a king. God has given them a king. And here's one of the great transition speeches of the Bible. There are, as the story of the Bible unfolds, great transition speeches where things are happening. Um, Deuteronomy is one of them, actually. Moses is about to die. And before he dies, he delivers this great speech, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, at the end of his life, Joshua gave a great speech to the people as, as they were moving from being invaders into the promised land to residents of the land. He delivered this great speech in Joshua 24. And here in 1 Samuel, we have Samuel's retirement speech. The transition is that people are moving from being led by judges, these warrior deliverers, to being led by kings. Samuel has been a judge, a judge and a prophet, Now he's just going to be a prophet, and they're going to be led on the battlefield by a king. And what he makes clear in this passage is that though there are some significant changes afoot, some things are going to stay the same. And that's actually what I want to look at in this passage, how I want to walk through this text with you this morning. Regardless of what changes come for God's people, there are three things that remain. That's what I want to talk about. Change is coming, some things don't change. The people need to hear Samuel say it, and we're going to listen in as he tells them about three things that don't change. And here, here they are. Number one, first of all, the call for godly leadership. The call for godly leadership doesn't change. Uh, Samuel's speech begins with a personal defense. Um, It seems almost like a trial here as you read this. Samuel puts himself on trial. The people are the prosecutors. And God and the king are the uh, black-robed, gavel-wielding judges. And and he talks about his role and what he has done. Uh, He defends himself here. And the question becomes, why? Why does Samuel start this way? On the one hand here, Samuel seems to be cashing out. That is, he's finishing his ministry as a judge and he wants the people to affirm that he's innocent of any wrongdoing as he leaves. Um, Have you ever worked in a retail establishment where you were in charge of the cash register? Maybe some of you worked at a bank. Uh, In the summers, uh, when I was in college, I worked at a camp and then at the end of camp, I worked at a restaurant for a couple weeks. It was a restaurant in a state park and uh, it was... um, I was the only, it was more of a snack shop than a restaurant, but it was right next to um, a, a flood control dam that controlled uh, the Genesee River, kept the Genesee River from flooding the city of Rochester. It was a snack shop. Uh, since it was right next to a dam, I love telling the people this. I was a, I was a, I'm a, since I'm a pastor, I love people to tell people this. The name of the restaurant was the Dam Restaurant because it was right next to the, the dam. So anyway... I would uh, go every day to work at the damn restaurant. And I would go to... You just like to hear me say it, don't you? I know that. Okay. So I would go to the main office. I'd pick up my cash bag. And I would take it to the restaurant. And I would count out the money so that I had all of it and put it in the cash register. I knew how much money was in there. Then I would work all day and take people's money and put it in the cash register. At the end of the day, I would print out a receipt that would tell me how much I had made. And I would add that to the amount that started. And I would cash out. I would count the amount of money in the cash register. And the numbers had to match. And I would turn it in. I would say, here's all the money I made. I didn't take anything. It's all honest. I, I, I am an, uh, an employee with integrity. Here's my cash bag. In a sense, that's what, that's what Samuel is doing here. Everything is accounted for in his ministry. He didn't take anything that wasn't his. 
in, in, in essence, in part, he's saying this, I think, because he's about to tell the people some hard truths. And he wants them to know, look, I'm not in this for the money. In fact, it, I'm going to tell you some hard things. I have done this my whole life because God had called me to it and because I loved you. I'm not in it for the money, so I'm going to tell you hard. You should listen to me when I tell you. Uh, it's not, I'm not trying to get more money out of you by telling you hard things because I've never been in it for the money. So I think that's what he's doing. Second thing I, I think he's doing, though, is he, he's, he's pointing forward to the kings. Remember back in chapter 8, in chapter 8 of Samuel, when the people first asked for a king, Samuel said, oh, you don't want a king. Do you know what a king's going to do? He's going to take and take and take and take. Actually, verse 2, he says, have I taken anything from you? Not verse 2, verse 3. Have I taken an ox? Have I taken a donkey? Verse 4, the people say, you have not taken anything. I suppose if I were Samuel at this point in time, I would turn to Saul. I'd be so tempted to turn to Saul and say, See, Saul, this is how you do it. You don't take. You don't take what is not yours. That's how you do it, Saul. Uh, Israel's last judge here, Samuel, is far better than any of the kings that she had because none of them lived up to this standard. Even when we get to the great David, he's going to take a woman who's not his wife and then he's going to take the life of her husband. They want a king just like all the other nations and they're going to get a king just like all the other nations. A king who takes and takes and takes and takes. They don't follow Samuel's example. See, the people don't want a leader like Samuel. They want a leader like everybody else and they're going to and they're beginning now just to feel the weight of that decision, the, the, the significance of the error that they have made. Jesus described this type of leadership pretty well, I think, in Mark chapter 10 when he said this, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's expectation, and it has not changed, it has not changed from the time of Samuel to the time today, is that the authority that he gives to men and women in churches and in homes and in ministries is that their authority is there, they have the authority from God to bless and not to hurt. This is what authority is supposed to do. Uh, remember what Samuel 23, 2 Samuel 23 says, The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, David says, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. This is what godly leadership is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring light and life. Is that what your children say of you? The authority that you have in your house? You know what, brought, what mom brings to my life? Mom brings light and life. I wonder if your employees say that at work. Probably, in some ways, you know, there may be bureaucracy or corporate rules that tie your hands, but, but do you bring light and life to those that are entrusted to your care? That's what authority is supposed to do. 
It's not supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to take. It's not supposed to be self-centered. It's supposed to be a blessing and not hurt. Samuel's testimony is that that's what he did, and his defense of his own ministry is a challenge to Saul and to all who will follow after him. Kings in Israel may be new, but the responsibility to bless in the positions of leadership is not. Now, I confess, I can't think about passages like this without considering leadership in the church. Uh, the Bible spends a fair amount of time talking about this, about how uh, there is the office in a congregation of elder, pastor, bishop, same thing. It's a noble task. If you aspire to it, you are wise. For most of my time at Grace, I was the youngest man serving on the board of elders. That changed a few years ago. And the situation is getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> Some of you are those who will begin to fill those roles again, younger than I am. The Bible speaks of the honor of serving as an elder, but it also speaks about the accountability of it. We are those who will give an account to God for our leadership. Samuel here is defending himself, talking about how he was a blessing. Now, while we're on that subject, I just want to point out something that Samuel says in verse 23. This is perhaps a little out of context for the moment, but look at verse 23. Samuel's retiring as a judge, but he's going to continue to be a prophet. And what does he say? He says, As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. What's Samuel going to do as a prophet? He's not going to be a judge anymore. He's going to be a prophet, though. He's going to pray for the people, and he's going to teach them God's word. It's interesting. It's the same thing that the apostles in Acts chapter 6 are concerned about as they move in the church to appoint deacons. They say, we've got to give ourselves over to praying and teaching the word. And do you know what, what Samuel says? If I don't do that, if I don't pray for you, I'm sinning against you. To fail to pray for those entrusted to your care is to sin against them. Isn't that a tremendous challenge? The growth group leader, or as a, a Sunday school teacher, or as an, an elder in the church, far be it for me to sin against you by failing to pray for you. We're going to talk about leadership a lot in the book of Samuel. It's all about kings. You can prepare for a position of leadership in God's church by becoming a prayerful person. The call to godly leadership does not change. Now here's something else that doesn't change. The second thing here. The need for consistency in confession and obedience. The need for consistency in confession and obedience. In the second part of Samuel's speech here, he reviews their history and it's not going to be very pleasant. Look at verse 7. It says, Now then stand here because I'm going to confront you. Samuel's saying, Get your pads and your helmet on. This is a full contact speech. This is going to hurt. Let me tell you something. And what he does here is he reviews their history. And um, he, he goes over five scenes. He goes over from their history. He mentions five of their enemies here. The Egyptians, Sisera, the Philistines, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. He mentions all five of them. 
Uh, Egypt is mentioned. Egypt is almost always mentioned. Uh, it's as if Joyce Baldwin says that when the Old Testament mentions how God rescued the people from Egypt under Moses and Aaron, it's reciting the Israelite creed. They, they talk about this all the time, how God has rescued you from Egypt. So there's Egypt. And then the last group he mentions is the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the reason why the Israelites asked for a king in the first place. Those three nations in the middle, of Sisera, the, the uh, government of uh, the military leader, the Philistines and the Moabites, they're there because they surround the nation of Israel geographically to the uh, north, to the southwest, to the east. Uh, he is being, Samuel is being geographically uh, comprehensive, but he's not being historically comprehensive. He's, he's just talking about all the enemies they've had, a lot of them, five of them. Then he talks about several deliverers that they have had. Moses and Aaron, Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. He mentions those, so five enemies, and then he mentions these deliverers. And then he mentions a pattern that has happened all the way through the Old Testament thus far. The pattern is this. The people wander from God. He sells them into their hands of their enemies. They cry out to him. He rescues them, and they follow him faithfully. They wander they get oppressed, they turn and come back to God and he follows them faithfully. It almost seems, it almost seems in this passage that these foreign nations that Samuel mentions, these enemy invaders are like God's sheepdogs. Uh, you've probably seen a sheepdog at work. If you haven't seen a sheepdog at work, maybe you've seen the movie Babe. If not, you should. So sheep. What do sheep do? They wander from the shepherd and a sheepdog comes on the other side and, and chases and nips and barks and herds them back into place. These enemy nations that are coming at the Israelites never come because God is too weak to protect them. They come because God is using these nations to drive them back to him. Now think about this here spatially for a minute. We'll think about it in terms of physical uh, space. Here is God. Here he is. He's unchanging and he's unmoving, but the people wander. They wander away from him. And they, they forget him. Or as verse 21 says, they turn away after useless idols that can do no good nor can rescue you because they're worthless. Worth, uh, useless. They're worthless too, but that's not in the text. They're useless. They wander away. And what does God do? God... Uh, his people are wandering, so enter the sheepdog, right? The Philistines, the Moabites, uh, 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 um, the, the, the Ammonites, they come. And what happens? God's people, they see the sheepdog. I don't think the Philistines probably thought of themselves as God's sheepdog, but that's all they are. Um, the, the, the sheepdog comes, and God's people turn, and they come back to God and follow him. They run back to him. I wonder if this, past, this concept will help you think at all for a minute about temptation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 talks about this same history, and he says that God is faithful. He does not allow us to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Temptation is under God's control and comes only with his permission. Why does temptation come? Where does it come? You're wandering away from God. Temptation comes. It's supposed to come right here to make you turn around and go back to God. Some of you think it comes right here, pushes you away. It's not God's intention in temptation. It's not his intention either in suffering. Maybe you're not wandering like the Israelites, but 
where in your relationship to God is cancer? Is it here pushing you away from God? Or is it here pushing you toward God? What has grief done in your life? Has it pushed you away from God? Or has it brought you back toward Him? Is, is unemployment one of God's sheepdogs in your life? Or have the heartbreak of having a prodigal son or daughter, is, it, is a sheepdog bringing you closer to him? I don't say it often, but, but remember what George Mandel used to say. I think George Mandel was an old Bible teacher. I think he was from Pennsylvania. I'm not sure. He used to say, I must see every person and circumstance that enters my life as the Holy Spirit coming to me in that person or circumstance in order to make me more like the Lord Jesus. Is is the calamity that is entering your life, is is it bringing you back? Some of you think that it's pushing you away and that that maybe seems oddly enough what God is allowing to happen. That's not his intention. It's not his purpose. Now the fifth enemy that is mentioned here in this uh, list, the Ammonites, the pattern is broken. Remember that before that, the people have been wandering away. The enemy comes. They turn back to God and, and, and follow him. The Ammonites, what happens is people are coming and God introduces the Ammonites and the people say, in fact, the text says, no, we want a king to rule over us. The people are in essence saying, you know what? I'm tired. I am tired of all this confession and repentance and turning to God and confessing my sins and all the work that's necessary to follow him faithfully. I am tired of that and I'm not going to do it anymore. I just want a king. Let's just get the king to do it. The king, we won't have to deal with this anymore. Um, What Samuel reminds him of, of, though, in this passage, is that uh, confession, repentance, turning to him, is an unavoidable aspect of a personal relationship with the God who made us. As long as we live in this world, God's people consistently and persistently are about the business of confessing our sin, of turning over and over and over again to acknowledging His supremacy and placing ourselves under His authority. I once heard a missionary, he was killed in a car accident several years ago, his name was Ed Lewis, and he was preaching to us once about Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 says, you are a living sacrifice. And Ed Lewis said, you know what the problem with living sacrifices is? They keep crawling off the altar. Get back up on there. Get back up on the altar. A believer without obedience, without confession, is broken just as much as nature is when you see a snowstorm in July. On July 4th, if you look out your window in Pennsylvania and it's snowing, something terrible has happened. Something is wrong. Nature is broken. Samuel points that way with the weed harvest that he brings. It's weed harvest time. It's the dry season. It's not supposed to be raining. And he calls down from God a terrible thunder and lightning storm. It's paralyzing the people there. They're terrified. They have finally come to realize how broken their situation is. Uh, Followers of God, God's people, when there's no confession and repentance, they are broken just as much as a snowstorm in July or a rainstorm in the wheat harvest season. Uh, God sent the Ammonites to the people so that they would cry out to him, and they absolutely refused. 
Now think with me for a minute about how unusual this is, what Samuel is calling uh, the people to do. It's how unusual it is in our day. Christian Smith is a researcher who's done a lot of study of young adults in particular and how, what they believe, what they believe about God and what they believe about Christianity. And he said that the majority of young adults in our country don't believe, I suppose he would say in the West, don't believe in um, um, Christianity. They believe something. Here's a religion. This is very difficult. He says that most young adults are moralistic, therapeutic deists. That doesn't look good on a bumper sticker at all. They don't make a little fish symbol or anything for that. But moralistic, therapeutic deists. That is, they believe that if you are nice, if you're a good person, if you're moralistic, if you have morals, then God will make you feel good. He'll, he'll make you happy. He'll give you good self-esteem. Moralistic, therapeutic deists. Other than that, though, he's not really involved in your life and doesn't really care. If you're a good person, God will make you happy, and other than that, he'll just get out of your way and not matter at all. So how did Christian Smith figure this out? Well, he talked to these young adults about their prayer life. Forty percent of the teens that he surveyed once uh, said that they, believe, they pray daily. Here's some of the lines that they gave him about why they pray. One, one teen said, If I ever have a problem, I go pray. It helps me deal with problems. It calms me down for the most part. Praying just makes me feel more secure, like there's something, somebody there, some, uh, he said, something there helping me out. I would say prayer is an essential part of my success. But uh, Christian Smith also found that there's two things that are missing uh, from uh, the prayer life of moralistic therapeutic deists. You know what it is? Uh, two things, what they are, repentance and adoration. This is not a religion, he says, of repentance from sin because this distant God is not demanding because this God's job is to solve problems and make me feel good. There's nothing here in my life that I ever need to evoke wonder or admiration. No, no repentance, no admiration. It's unusual what Samuel is, is calling the people to. This is how faith, though, in Jesus manifests itself. Owning your sin and submitting yourself to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of our worship. We take time during the Lord's Supper for some silent and sober reflection. Confession is, is part of our public prayer. We could do it more when we pray together publicly. Uh, confession. We remind one another as we meet with one another that the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Follow Him. We say to one another, verse 24, Brothers and sisters, fear the Lord. Serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. This is why we confess our sins to one another. We're looking for help. We're looking for accountability. We're looking for comfort. It's interesting. Samuel said here in verse 20, when they finally realize what they've done, he says, do not be afraid. Have you ever said that to somebody in your accountability group? Has it ever become necessary because you have worked that deeply into someone's heart? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is, is faithful. He, he forgives. Don't be afraid. Ray Ortland was talking about the submission part of this whole 
call that Samuel issues. Listen to what he says. I think I've shared this with you before. He said, you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. Imagine in your heart a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There is the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the righteous religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is that we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. That sort of person can accept Jesus in two ways. One way is to invite him to join the committee. Give him a vote, too but then he becomes just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It is also subtracting those idolatrous voices. Jesus can run your life because he is God and because he is Savior. You are his twice if you're his follower, once by right of creation, once by right of redemption. He offered himself as our substitute on the cross, paying the penalty for the sins that you owed, and he's worthy of your wholehearted allegiance. And we remind one another of this. God's people, as we have always been, we consistently turn ourselves to the task of confession and obedience, realigning ourselves, crawling back up on the altar, setting ourselves with God's purpose, even if you have a king. Now there's one more thing that does not change here, third and briefly. Some things change, some things remain. Here's the third thing. The commitment of God to his people. The commitment of God to his people. The Israelites, they recognize their failure to do what they should have done. They, they recognize their, they, they've tried to run an end run around confession and obedience. So what's their hope? And we, get, we turn to the, con, the subject of God's keeping power. It is his faithfulness to them that's going to make the difference. Verse 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Again, your being kept is part of God's commitment to himself for the sake of his great name. Lead me in paths of righteousness. Why? For your name's sake. God's faithfulness to his people. God has made you his own. He will keep you his own. God is upholding his own faithfulness. It's his reputation that is a work. Bill Arnold talks about this a little bit. He says in particular this passage, what we see is an example of God's reconfiguring grace. It's a great phrase. We talk about God's forgiving grace and we talk about his sustaining grace. Here is an example, he says, of God's reconfiguring grace. This is how we see God's faithfulness to his people. God's reconfiguring faith, uh, grace is evident in the fact that God takes what we mess up and he fixes it and uses it for his own purposes. 
The people asked for a king. It was a terrible choice to ask for a king. It was an act of rebellion. They finally see that here in this chapter. But God is going to turn that terrible request into a blessing for them. He's going to give them David. And through David, he's going to give them Jesus. God reconfigures our mess graciously. Wynton Marcellus uh, may be the greatest uh, living trumpeter. Maybe not. Maybe he is. Well, he was once doing a jazz concert in a small lounge in New York City, and he was playing along during a moment when the music was fading, and he was sustaining a a note that was drifting off. A phone rang in the the lounge. This is a while ago. It was one of those obnoxious ringtones, you know, those, those harsh, electric, chirpy sounds. If you're in an environment like that, you scramble for your phone. It feels like it's an hour past before you can get your phone out and turn it off, but it's like three seconds. But that whole sound of that terrible filled the room, and everybody froze, even Wynton Marcellus. Well, the, the phone stopped. There was a moment of silence, and Wynton Marcellus, then on his trumpet, played that awful tune, that phone tune ringing. He had heard it, and he started playing it. Um, except it was from a trumpet master. It wasn't that terrible chirpy sound. It was from the master. He played it again, and he played it again, and, and it, then he, he riffed off of it. He added triplets and arpeggios and syncopation, and it became a three-minute cadenza, a, a solo, uh, based on a terrible cell phone ring. That's what master musicians do. It's what God does here in Samuel. He's going to take their terrible request, their request for which they repented, and he's going to uh, syncopate it and add arpeggios. He's going to add triplets, and he's going to add repetition, and it's going to become to them a source of blessing and hope. It's reconfiguring grace because God is faithful. And because he is, it motivates our turning back to him over and over and over again. His commitment to his people does not change. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we come through Jesus Christ who is our Savior. We come on the basis of the work that he has done, not on the basis of what we have done, but but through him. He is the one who has prepared the way for us. And we come to you, Father, because you are the one who is faithful to all of your people. For your name's sake, we ask today that you you would hear us as we pray, even now, for your name's sake, we come. Oh, Father, I pray that you would make us a congregation who is a sincere and true and real with this call here of uh, confession and submission to you. Over and over and over again, we turn back, we turn back to you because of your faithfulness. You demonstrate to us your great love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How thankful we are. Lord, we magnify your great faithfulness. It is our hope and it is our plea before you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.